welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. This is the show where we cover an individual stock for probably 45 minutes and get you the basics of a company, the basic financials, history, what they're doing, what their plans are. And today we're talking RH, formerly Restoration Hardware, but now called just RH, I think just that, not even RH Group or anything. It's very short. It's clean. Like the social, it reminds me of the social network uh, line, but we're going to get to that. But we have to talk about our sponsor first, Common Stock. Common Stock is a social network for smart money investors. We've talked about them a lot. And Brad Freeman is joining us today. You just, I don't know what the. It's called signed a deal. Signed a deal. Yeah, I guess. I did a deal. It did a big deal with uh, Common Stock. Do you want to talk about it? Maybe not another deal, but like why you sure. like common stock and why you think it's a, it's a great platform. Sure. I, I think they've kind of uh, borrowed the good things from Twitter um, and, and maybe uh, kind of sidestepped some of the, the not so good things. And, and I think um, the last few months we we've all kind of seen uh, how the not so good things can kind of manifest themselves. And it's not unique to the last few months, but I mean, Twitter can get pretty noisy and toxic and, and deflating and, and common stock is just um, a more focused environment where, where I found it to be more, uplifting and and more uh more kind of in this together and and more transparent with with portfolio sharing uh than twitter so so it's something that i i've quickly uh grown to use a lot and and then uh am now partnering with them and sponsoring them with the newsletter and and doing a lot of cool things with them so so yeah i I agree with you guys that cool company for sure so partnering is that that entails you just uh kind of promoting them on the show is there any uh on the newsletter on your newsletter is called stock market nerd if anyone's interested it's true (laughs) yeah newsletter sponsorships uh i'm gonna be uh doing some things that i can't really get into specifics on um in in the site or on, on the website itself uh but excited to excited to share and show as as i can talk about it more well, All so right, little that's, tease, little that's tease a there. good advertisement for common stock because it shows that they have good taste. That is exactly <laughs> right. And if you want to go to them, go to commonstock.com, join other smart individual investors who want to share their portfolio ideas. All right, Ryan, introduce RH, one of the most fascinating companies. I'll tease it again here that I think we're, we've covered on the show. Yeah. I don't know if the basics of the business are like super enthralling, but the direction they're headed and sort of the management and just the company in general uh, is is kind of interesting. So the first line in RH is, uh, I feel weird calling them RH. In RH's 10K says, RH is a curator of design, taste, and style in the luxury lifestyle market. Basically, it's a high-end retailer of home furnishings, but it's added some unique characteristics as well. And so they primarily sell these, uh, they, they sell through these really grand, I would say, locations, which they call their galleries. And so these are, they basically function as a showroom and they're stunning looking. Like you, you notice it no matter where it is. The it's, it looks like a European villa almost like there, it's like these castles in the middle of shopping centers. And then they, in, inside they sell like 
Um, anything from furniture to lighting, home decor, outdoor and gardening items. And then there's like teen and kids furniture as well. Um, and these are really expensive things too. So it's like the cheapest couch ten is around $4,000. And if you get like a sectional, it can go upwards of 10K. So really expensive, really trying to curate or uh, tailor to the upper class. Um, and it, as far as sort of logistics go, it sources its products by working closely with third-party vendors and manufacturers. About three quarters of their purchases came from 29 vendors with the largest one accounting for 11%. So uh, pretty good, I guess, supplier diversification there. And then they manage their own distribution and in, in, distribution and delivery. So they have home delivery services for their customers. Basically, they're trying to make this the most comprehensive, uh, luxurious shopping experience a customer can find. Um, and so the business, uh, it's pretty easy to understand. And one but, thing though, you can't buy at the store. You have to, it's like, it is a gallery, right? You have to like, you can't take it home the day of. I think you have to like purchase and then, you know, they'll deliver it to you. I think it's almost like later. Peloton in that sense where like, yep, you, exactly. you're picking your item, um, but you're not like taking it home from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. I think that pretty much covers the basics of the business. They they are doing some tangential uh We'll get into that. The RH three, you guys gonna try to? Right on that. You guys gonna try to uh, it, join us on the Gulf Stream? <laughs> it's our future growth opportunity, so we're gonna talk about it in a little bit. But they they are adding some new uh, characteristics to the business that are kind of interesting. And then as far as history goes, pretty fascinating here. So RH or Restoration Hardware, as it was uh, known initially, was founded by Stephen Gordon in Eureka, California, in 1979. It was a similar concept to what it is today, only it was just hardware, so not like furniture. And then they didn't have quite the luxury appeal, but basically Gordon, who had a bunch of experience working in merchandising, tried, he he thought there was a market for high quality, uh, but affordable hardware. And so he started what turned out to be restoration hardware. That business expanded gradually and eventually they IPO'd about 20 years later in 1998. Fast forward three years and restoration hardware hired Gary Friedman as the new CEO, still current CEO. Brad's going to talk about him here in a little bit. But Friedman, from what I can tell, was he's worked in retail all his life. He was a stock boy at Gap uh, in, in, in his early days. And then he was rejected or passed over for the CEO role at Williams Sonoma. So he joined RH instead. For the Years between sort of the subsequent years after 2001 uh, to 2008, they continued to grow. But then the great financial crisis kind of it crippled them to some extent. And they ended up getting bought out, I believe, by a private equity firm. Um, so they went private, delisted. And in that time, they decided to make this sort of brand change to go more up market. And they rebranded as RH. And in 2012, they re-IPO'd. Keep in mind, uh, uh, Gary Friedman is still the CEO by this point. And the stock was sort of a battleground stock. Everyone thought they were going to either get killed by Amazon or this luxury strategy wasn't going to work. Uh, and so there's this famous quote from Gary Friedman uh, in 2017, where he says, 52% of our shares were short for God's sakes. Okay. Honestly, and the shorts and those in you in the room, listen, I don't care. Everybody can gamble the way they want to gamble. Honestly, again, I care about our long-term investors. So since that point, the stocks 10 X 
Uh, and that was like five years ago. So it's been a wonderful investment since. He also kind of announced a levered buyback at that point. With so, convertible notes, kind of interesting. We're seeing some of the dilution come back today, but they took down like 50% of the shares outstanding in a year, which uh, was, I don't want to say the word ballsy, but ambitious. He's not afraid to make uh, the team there, especially it's not just him. The team there is not afraid to make big, bold moves. Yeah. And they, the luxury transition worked. I guess we can confidently say that now. Um, they today they are a, a, a big company, eighty-one retail locations. Right, you're going to get into the valuation or industry here as well. But uh, they're humming along now. Yep, and I'll hit industry and competition here. Yeah, they are doing quite well. The, the, the transition has worked, I guess, over the past five years. And I will tease kind of their future growth plans here, but we'll get into that in the second half of the show. I mean. There's really two markets. Their current market is fairly simple. It's upscale, uh, and it's spelled right here, but it's furniture market. Uh, <laughs> then their future uh, industries that they're trying to target is hospitality, restaurants, and travel. Management believes there's about 20 to $25 billion in demand worldwide for their niche in the, the furniture market, which is basically home furnishings. furnishings. Um, and that is out of the total home furnishing market of about $170 billion. Their long-term market gets a bit into the kind of TAM sanity stuff at about $7 trillion to $10 trillion TAM estimate. That's from management. I would really just ignore that and focus on how well they're executing with these new initiatives that they're going through. And then competitors, there are a ton out there. It's a pretty mixed market. There's a lot of different ways people go about it. There's some that serve the business side. There's some that are cheaper. As people probably know, You know, most couches aren't $4,000. But competitors are someone like Pottery Barn, Ethan Allen, The Citizenry, Herman Miller, Wayfair is an interesting competitor that's more of an online one. I mean, Amazon's a competitor. There are really tons out there. Pretty simple industry. I think people can understand. Brad, you want to hit management and ownership? Yeah. So Gary Friedman is the current CEO and, and uh, chairman of, of the board as well. He On the website, he's credited with kind of being the founder of the RH brand as we know it. So uh, Ryan talked about that brand refresh and then becoming RH. And Gary Friedman is really um, the guy responsible or, or credited with, with that transformation. Um, he climbed the board for a long time with this company. He'd, he'd been there on the board since 2001. Um, so he definitely uh, paid his dues before becoming CEO. He was the former president and COO of William Sonoma, um, as well as president of Pottery Barn. Um, awesome resume. Uh, he does have the lowest glass door score I've ever seen um, with a lot of reviews. I think there were like 1300 reviews. And he's got a 46% approval rating. I mean, that's not a red flag, but it's just, um, it's he's notably controversial. Yeah. He's controversial, definitely right? a controversial character. For sure. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, that was, that was a, that was surprising to me or maybe it shouldn't have been, but, but it was, but, um, the president is Ari Chaya. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, she also climbed up the ladder for a long time, former banana Republic creative director. Uh, and, and then just a really, I mean, it's interesting to juxtapose the terrible glass floor rating with the executive tenures that have been very long, um, across the board. So clearly his, his, his leadership team likes him, but, but maybe his employee base doesn't as much. Um, ownership. And, and this is maybe another source of the controversy. Uh, Gary owns 28% of the company. Uh, his total compensation of $178 million uh, for from 2021 was thanks to a massive options package. His salary is only a million. Um, but but I mean, he, he got that 28% through, through very, very generous options packages and performance incentives. And then he was just given another several hundred thousand share bonus for $178 million this year. Um, 
Yeah. So, so he's, he's very well paid. Um, so I, I will leave it there. Uh, BlackRock owns 8.4 Berkshire Hathaway. Love to see that owns 8.2%. T Rowe price owns six Goldman Sachs owns 4.6. All directors and officers own about a third of the company and Gary's pretty much all of that ownership. Needless to say, Berkshire does not care about Glassdoor. They are, uh, maybe, yeah. Well, if it's not a glass door ratings kind of guy. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it probably wasn't him that bought it. Uh, it was one of the other two. Yeah. Uh, I guess we don't, we don't know for sure, but they took a large stake um, and they've held it for a long time. So hopefully they kind of see it as we can get into later. There are some similarities to maybe Apple and some of the other brands that people like. One thing I want to talk about with management, what do you guys think of Friedman basically laying out a pretty ambitious plan right on the front of every single letter they do and right on the website, like, we're going to oh. be this. We're going to climb the mountain. We're going to whatever. It sounds like almost like a coach or something. What do you guys think, Brad? What, what were your thoughts on that? Is like as a potential yeah. investor, he's he's got a flair for for the dramatic. I, I think is is a uh-huh. decent way to put it. I mean, if you've read if you've read any part of his prepared remarks from last earnings call, um, it, it was kind of like Bill Ackman, <laughs> like prepare for shock and all. Like he was he was a doomsdayer, and and then kind of comparing that with what you're talking about, he he's just. He's got a lot of personality, and I, I think, um, as evidenced by some of the things we've talked about, you either love him or you hate him. Um, and and uh, yeah, probably just I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, would you say uh, same thing? Maybe he's yeah, he's definitely intense for uh, being the CEO of a furniture store, um, and I know it's more than that now. Uh, and maybe that's what they need, I guess, to build the luxury brand. But some of his quotes are a little. Uh, Outrageous. I do like how he treated the analysts when they asked the same question over and over. He goes, oh. what do you think? No, no one says that. Uh, I thought you're, that you're was spoiling, You're spoiling my earnings. Oh, your earnings. Okay, sorry. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. All right, valuation, market cap, $8.3 billion, tickers RH. Enterprise value is right around the same as the market cap if you exclude leases and calculating that with debt. Do what you want there. They have some finance leases and operating leases that I'm sure Brad uh, will talk more about, stuff like that in the balance sheet. Um, they just took out... The term loan again, Brad, I'll talk about the balance sheet. Price to sales 2.2, price to operating income of nine, and price to free cash flow of 17. Now, the discrepancy between free cash flow and operating income and all these metrics are just taking the market cap divided by trailing whatever metric, whatever financial metric. So, price to free cash flow is different than price to operating income because they are in a heavy investment period. They are doing quite a bit of CapEx relative to their size, I think about 200 million. And they have an inventory headwind at the end of last year. They have been very, very strong over the last five to six years of improving their working capital and getting better just cash flow generation because of uh, the inventory turnover. But last year, not as much. It's probably just short-term things with the pandemic. And then lastly, there are a lot of tugs and pulls with the dilution and the options that uh, Brad is talking about with ownership, the convertible notes. There's some debt and there it's really too much to talk about on the show. You can run exact numbers in detail, but from the 10K, they had about 7.7 million options outstanding versus 24.5 million current shares outstanding. I think the majority of those are going to hit, except for possibly the ones that were just granted. 
So the market cap, the true market cap is slightly higher than what we're seeing here. And if you look recently, they just converted some of the convertible notes and the share count bumped up by quite a bit. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah. In 2021, they had $3.8 billion in revenue. That was up 32% versus 2020. It was up, I think, 42% versus 2019. And then on that revenue, rest or I was going to say restoration hardware, RH uh, had an adjusted operating margin of 25.2%. That's also up uh, a decent amount year over year, but it's also, it's, it's up more than a thousand basis points from 2019. So they had 14.3% operating margin in 2019. Now they have 25.2%. So they've been able to become way more profitable in the recent years. Uh, and then as Brett mentioned, uh, the, their free cash flow was, I guess, down compared to what it would normally be. Um, so they had, they had $477 million in free cash flow. That's about 13% free cash flow margin, but that also includes a $191 million increase in inventory, which uh, hurts cash flow, I guess, for anyone who's unfamiliar. Um, and a lot of that was attributable to the supply chain problems. Uh, and he he got into this on the conference call in basically a clip that almost went viral Um when he was asked about whether or not the supply chain problems affected their new product launches, he said, what do you think? Of course it's impacting launches. And then he goes on, he says, I mean, the supply chain, I think many of us thought it would have been, uh, would have been caught up by now. I mean, we'll be lucky to be caught up by the end of the year. And because it's just hitting everybody from all angles, all the raw materials, all the transportation issues, not just the transportation getting it to us, our vendors having to get all their components from all over the world shipped to them. So you just have this compounding supply chain kind of puzzle happening. He really did sound like a bit of a doomsdayer on the conference call. You wouldn't have expected it, I guess, from just reading the results uh, from his report. But uh I guess 2021 was a record year for him, but you would not have thought it just listening to his commentary. Yeah, I agree. All right, Brad, you want to finish up all the financials here with balance sheet? Yep. So the company has uh, $2.2 billion in cash and equivalents on hand. Uh, that That is, so Brett kind of talked about a term loan that they recently raised, which was for $1.9 billion. Um, they've got another $294 million in outstanding convertible notes. Uh, as, as, as again, that we kind of alluded to, they, they really aggressive, aggressively use these convertible notes. They've paid off most of them, uh, but, but still 300 million outstanding. So obviously that's not nothing. Um, a lot of options outstanding as Brad talked about only 2% dilution from a share count perspective from 2020 to 2021. Um, but it sounds like that could be a little lumpy, um, just considering when these options, gifts and packages vest, uh, but, and it's operating cash flow positive despite the really heavy investment phase. So, um, I, you can't call the balance sheet pristine, but it's not a red flag. It's kind of, it's like, it's adequate. Yeah. They use, they're not afraid to use financial engineering, you know, they, uh, <laughs> and it's been to their benefit. So, so yeah, so far it has been quite to their benefit just because of the way they were able to take down the share count. Um, Cox panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Let's move into anecdotal evidence. Brad, anything? Have you been to one? I, I, I'll put my hands up. I have not. Uh, I'm not a luxury aficionado, Brad, any thoughts? 
Yeah, I got nothing. I, I, I mean, I've probably sat or, or, or used a table that Restoration Hardware was responsible for selling it, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, rent? I've never, I don't think I've ever been in one, maybe when I was like a kid or something, but that was kind of a different business at that point. There is one in Seattle that I drive by a lot and it looks crazy, like crazy you, out of place. Village, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically this European castle in the middle of a college shopping center. And it's just, it's wildly out of place, but it, it looks well, you, nice. You're trying to get the, uh, I don't know exactly how many, 100,000 people in Seattle area that are I'm mean, very wealthy. There's to, plenty to of market opportunity there. here. Yeah. yeah. But it, I just, it's funny that where it's located, but the building uh, looks quite extravagant. Yeah. They're kind of those weird, the location strategy has been unique, but it's worked out quite well for them. Um, I mean, mine, I don't know. I have no, I don't know. It seems fine. Like I don't have a grasp on it. I've never really been you're not, you're uh, a, a recurring customer. I, yeah. I mean, I think their target audience is the people that are worth more than $10 million a year have incomes of like $500,000 a year. So none of us are in that uh, yet, maybe sometime uh, in the long term. But I mean, I think it sounds like a good fine place to shop if, you know, if you had that kind of money, uh, I don't know. All right, let's move into future growth opportunities. Brad, what do you think? Yeah, you guys got the the two probably most feasible ones, so I'm going to I'm going to get a little creative and 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 say things that will probably never come to fruition, but it, and you never know with them. You never know with exactly, them. Exactly. Exactly, because he's so ambitious, I feel comfortable being this kind of outlandish outlandish, but um I, I thought about maybe like auto OEM partnerships and and maybe um if they're that high scale furniture couch company or whatever just um kind of for the lucids of the world and the companies trying to go after those higher uh, higher affluency customers, maybe a partnership with them that they do the interior or something like that. Um, also Peloton, I mean, they're, they're, this, uh, they're this upscale indoor furniture company and, and Peloton kind of seems like um, it fits that, that vision, that culture a, a little bit if they wanted to expand into um, in-home gyms, which, which they've shown no indication of wanting to do. Um, and Peloton's pretty cheap right now. So that now would be a decent time. I, I don't think that new CEO is in, in a position where he wants to sell. He's got a lot of uh, options and promises coming his, his way. But um, but yeah, I mean, go buy Peloton restoration hardware. I think, and it's like an $8 billion market cap in Peloton's four. So that would be a massive undertaking, but but still go ahead and do it and entertain me. <laughs> yeah, I've seen Peloton's market cap here. I think $4 billion would be another 50% drawdown. So if that happens, it could be feasible. Right now, their market cap's... I think are a little too close unless they want to gotcha. merge. But that does that does uh, it does fit in pretty well with their Peloton strategy. RH. Yeah, it sounds. I could see the merger. It's, well, it's, it's overlapping the target audience. The audiences. All right, Ryan, what do you have? So this one is basically the one they've talked a lot about, and that is moving to hospitality. As I mentioned earlier, RH is trying to make their customer experience more holistic. So this includes live fire restaurants, caviar bars, wine bars, and even guest houses. Um, so far, they've integrated RH Hospitality into 13 of their locations, and they plan to expand it into more, as well as making it uh, basically a staple of all, all their new galleries. Um, they, they say that this should not only increase spend through, obviously, like the hospitality features, but uh, RH believes that the addition of hospitality will drive incremental sales of home furnishings as well. I like the thesis here. It seems pretty simple. Drunk people spend more. Oh, let me catch you there. They don't serve alcohol. Wine bar. 
No, no, the they don't serve alcohol at the ones in the at least from what I read. Someone's uh, there was a presentation from uh, Bill Brewster that said they decided not to do alcohol. In the Q4 um, letter, they said they had champagne and uh, I know, but I think it, I think it at the I don't know. Maybe they changed their strategy in the last two years, but they said they didn't like specifically didn't want it. It does feel Wait, a little exploitative uh, to give them. Yeah, he said he wanted it to be as because women are their their core audience. He said he wanted to be in a place where women feel as comfortable as possible. Let me confirm while you continue to talk. Okay. Well, that's. I mean, that's sort of the basics of it. I I don't know about the guest houses. That seems strange to me, uh, but maybe I just don't understand the habits of the ultra wealthy. Uh, but. I, I imagine it's not just sleeping on one of the couches in the gallery. It's probably a little more of an extravagant experience. Did yeah. you find anything? Uh, the 10 K said they have wine bars. Yeah. But that might be different. Yeah. That could be like separate than the core one. That's the core restaurant in the place. Uh, I'm seeing conflicting things here, but I, there was a quote from two years ago. Maybe they changed their strategy. So. All right. What, uh, what's your future growth opportunity? Yeah. So this is the, the one that they're doing the most, this will be the one that contributes to revenue in the in the near term, and that is European expansion. So this is happening in 2022 and the next few years beyond that in England, France, Germany, Spain, galleries opening up in all those major cities. Think Paris, France, uh, sorry, Paris, London, or Berlin, Barcelona, I think, Madrid. Friedman thinks there is less competition in luxury furniture in Europe than in the United States. I wouldn't really know that, but he probably has a better grasp than me. However, it is still kind of a big risk since the luxury product culture or just consumer culture is a little bit different or very different in Europe compared to North America. Will RH be embraced? I think that's a big question. I don't think we really have, we, I don't think we can answer that, but do you guys have any speculation on that? I kind of feel like it will work. I think it'll but work. Well, what do you, what do you think, Brad? I, I think they're, Fancy American brand probably will, will resonate pretty well in, in, in Europe for the target market that they're going after, I think. It yeah. feels kind of like European luxury already. Kind of. But, yeah, but it's, like fake, it's fake luxury, well. though. It, or it's just kind of fake luxury, though. I mean, those couches look pretty nice. I know. It's, but in the way All that... All luxury is luxury. Like, no, in the way that the true European luxury, like what a Louis Vuitton and uh, Ferrari, it, in yeah. comparison to that, the top dogs, it's fake luxury, okay, but yeah, obviously not, there's different tiers. It's not that level, yeah. But that's Europeans, the top, top level, quote unquote. So, you know, that's the only I, risk I think I'm they probably, of. if they're if they're going full-blown launch into Europe, I imagine they have some metrics that are pointing them to do that. Right. The people worth $100 million might scoff at them, but everyone else that has any yeah. sort of spending power will be fine. All right. Highlights and lowlights. Brad, uh, what did you like and dislike about this business? Yeah, my, mine is actually more macro um, for in terms of highlights. And, and I know Gary Friedman was was very alarmist on the call, but if you look at kind of forward-looking indicators for freight and for inventory pressures and and for commodity pricing, they're beginning to kind of fade. And, and today today is is not a good example of that. But but over the last few weeks, we, we've begun to see peaks in those prices in terms of lumber and, and all these input costs that that restoration hardware is really focusing on. So highlight for me is is I think um, I, I think. We're we're post we're we're weeks removed from kind of level setting expectations and lowering the bar for outperformance a, a lot a significant amount um, which I think is going to make outperformance or it will make outperformance a, a lot easier going forward so um, a little bit of a weird highlight but but I but I wanted to mention that 
Um, and then, so yeah, and, and I think a bottoming, a bottoming of margins or margin pressure at least could could kind of come to fruition. The low light is, and and Warren Buffett told me to say this is the glass door rating really, <laughs> really stood out to me. I, I, I've never seen, I really have never seen that before. Below sixty percent, I don't think I've ever seen. And it's not like ninety eight percent is. Yep, I'm going to invest in your company and and in a great sign. It's just. Um, one of those things to kind of check off the list and, and not worry about as much. But uh, with him, you with Gary Friedman, you do have to worry about that. So that that is that is the low light. Um, you you the, the attention or the the CEO fetches a lot of attention, um, and that's not super appealing to me, honestly. I yeah, he has been a little radical. I it maybe be the word. Um, he's obviously kind of curt with some of the analysts and very I guess frank with them in, in some cases. Well, that's I, funny. They're all, yeah, yeah, it's all right it to bully dramatic. the analysts. It's not all right to bully <laughs> the employees. Um, but the the other thing is they, there was, um, he was removed as CEO for like one year at one point for a relationship yeah, yeah. with a subordinate. Consensual, but still. Yeah. CEO. It is just a weird look for a CEO to do that. Um, I do like his capital allocation though. He's run the company really well, obviously so far. Um, I also think the luxury market, if they're able to go true luxury, like make it a whole luxury experience, that would do better in a recession. Um, And I think they can be successful with these new initiatives. I, I think of the hospitality. I don't know about the guest well, houses, but I think well, the rest will work. But what about the planes and the yachts? I, I don't know. That seems, I mean, those are only small things, but uh, it's interesting. I mean, the, I don't know. The guest house in New York is, it's different because it's not even like an Airbnb thing. It's not like a hotel. It's like nine rooms, super private, probably pretty expensive, like almost like something to get out of the city, almost like, what do they call those houses that exclusive house type things? I don't know. It could drive the importance of the RH membership to uh, just be more valuable. Yeah. I I think they can go. I think they do like, I know they talk about climbing the mountain of luxury. I think they can climb that and they've been able to do it well so far. So I guess that, that would be my highlight low light for me though. They are in a really tough spot, obviously right now with the supply chain, um, 69% 69% of their products come from Asia. I saw a chart this morning that uh, showed there are almost 800 ships waiting to load or discharge in Shanghai right now. It's at an all-time high and by a long shot. So I, it doesn't. it's hard to know what cash flow is going to look like in the short term. And as right, it'll be, it may be better because there's no inventory. <laughs> I, okay. Over the next two years, I have no yeah. idea what it'll look like. But yeah, the, I think... Gary painted the picture probably pretty well. He said, I'll be shocked if it'll be, if these problems will be gone in a year. Um, I mean, we were talking about this during COVID. We were like, these supply chain problems will be gone in a year. It's been say, like, almost yeah. what, two years since? Uh, year and a half no. yeah. Since the first kind of supply, supply chain problems year and a surface. Half. Year and a half, yeah. And I don't think we're a whole lot closer. If anything, we're in a worse spot. Uh, well, Brad was saying there's some decent data, but yeah, I mean, those are, yeah, that's, that's not, I mean, Asia is the exception in terms of, yeah. in terms right. of kind of freight buildup. Uh, it's better in, 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 the, in North America, just because of those, those trucking, um, restrictions and vaccination stuff kind of went away. Um, but yeah, a- Asia, if, if they're, and I didn't know they're sourcing three quarters of their product from Asia. So that, that is, that is a concern for sure. Yeah. The two things on that one, the Shanghai lockdown. Yeah, definitely through a giant wrench into that. And two, since 69% of the products are sourced from Asia, 
that nope. kind of hints to me the the fake luxury thing. I don't say that products just from <laughs> Asia are bad, but you know that like there's obviously oh, that's what you're products there. there but. Yes, I think there's obviously some efforts to maybe cut costs on the, the people that knew the analysts that i read that, that knew the company well and that have shopped at the stores said it's still kind of like you know fake luxury but they're able to charge a high price so you know all, all to them I probably, that's, not a, that's not a negative i want to know the difference but yeah neither yeah. would i but apparently their customers don't either all right what are your highlights and lowlights i mean highlights it's definitely an upscale brand now with pricing power looking at where their margins have been Strong unit economics, great real estate strategy with good returns on invested capital, which is very important for a company like this that is, you know, taking those big gallery investments that cost maybe tens of millions of dollars. And I think there are lots, there's a lot of optionality with these new initiatives. They're high risk, but we'll see. Low lights, I think there's two main things that I don't like. One is that they're probably still tied to the business cycle. They're not Ferrari or Louis Vuitton yet. Yeah. Um and they are more consumer discretionary. So if anyone doesn't really know, the, a lot of people know what that means, but just to give an example, consumer staples is like grocery store stuff. You're going to have to eat all the time. So you're going to pay for that, even though inflation is going out of control. And if you have less money to spend or you're less willingness, you, the wealth effect is kind of disappearing. Maybe if the stock market is going down, you may not be wanting to buy a thousand dollar chair from RH. And that concerns me as a low light, just because the, their margins seem to peak with where the business cycle peaked. Let's see what happens over the next few years if the economy in the United States slows down. Yeah, it is hard to call them recession resilient when it sounds like the financial crisis almost broke them. But that also is, it sounds like the moment that spurred them to go up market. Hopefully they're less cyclical now, but I still don't think they're not cyclical at all. If that okay. makes sense, if that makes sense. All right. Two, second one, second okay. one, growth initiatives are on the border of ambitious and reckless. So uh, I don't know. They feel a bit reckless. Yeah. I didn't read about the jets, but they got the jet, the RH1 and the RH2. That's what they're calling it. What are they like jets? They're gold streams. There are other gold streams that you can, if you're an RH member, you can buy. And then there's a yacht that RH members can take in like the Caribbean. It, okay, that feels a little risky. Yeah, it does feel risky. Um, luckily, there's only two right now, but <laughs> I mean, it also could make an RH membership feel pretty worthwhile. Who knows? Yeah. All, All right. right, bull case. Brad, what's your bull case here? Yeah, it's hard to say uh, or get more creative aside from new products work and, and new markets work. But, but aside from that, I think the bull case is um, if, if we do have this economic downturn like everyone and, and their mother is is predicting we do in 2022 or 2023 uh they and and both of you guys hinted at this but they're they're catering to more affluent clients means that their clientele is inherently less price conscious um which means that they could probably enjoy some demand outperformance and maybe a little bit of pricing power to kind of offset um these supply chain issues and and i think um that is the bull case that they are that they aren't louis vuitton or or uh ferrari but um, they're also not uh, tattooed chef, not not to not to. They're um, not Gap. Yeah, they're not. Gap. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, they're 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 they are uh, building brand equity quickly, and I think that brand equity could manifest itself, and they're enduring these tough times a little better than some others can. Yeah, I, there's a stats out there. If you want to read a great write up, mostly borrowed ideas, he does great analyst reports for maybe someone that they're very highly detailed. So if you're kind of an individual doesn't read in SEC filings, if you're someone that reads SEC filings, MBI is perfect for you, but he had some stats about 
the number of people worth over $10 million in the US. And I believe it's 1.5 million people. Right now, they only have 450,000 members. And I say the threshold of $10 million, say what worth $10 million, because you're going to be fair, unless you're levered up as like, say, a real estate investor or something, you blow, you blow up in the recession, you're going to be pretty resilient in your spending habits. Um, and those people may be able to carry them, the RH, uh, RH brand. And they, they mentioned in their SEC filings that 97% of the revenue, which again, 97% of the revenue comes for the 450,000 RH members. So it doesn't matter if, mm. I, I don't know, it doesn't like, it's really those, the wealthy, the, the 1% of the United States. This is, is a great wealth inequality play. I mean, <laughs> that is if, true. You wanna, if you're long wealth true. inequality, this is the place to, uh, do it and now now what if that cycle is breaking though that could also be a headwind for them if because wealth inequality over the last two decades could have been beneficial to our age i i think it was yeah uh what if, that, if that reverses i think that's headwind i think yeah maybe but i, I don't have any good guess as to w- whether that's gonna grow or shrink but the bull case for me is um if they can hit like high single digit revenue growth, maybe even double digit revenue growth and get back to uh, maybe like high teens free cash flow margins, or at least get those free cash flow margins a little closer to uh, their operating margins. This is, pro- this is going to be a great investment. I think this could be 20% plus returns because you're literally paying probably low teens cash flow multiple right now, um, maybe mid teens. But I, I think there is a lot to like here if things go right. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I kind of in a similar boat. Decent, given the decently cheap valuation on the trailing numbers, I think you need to believe North American business is fairly immune to the economic cycle and has room to grow. They still think there's five to six billion dollars of revenue in the United States. And what, what did Ryan, what did you have, Ryan? It's, it's a little less than four billion dollars in revenue, I believe. 3.8, and, yeah. And then the European expansion. I don't think it needs to be a success, like a huge success, but if the European expansion is a success, excuse me. They can drive top line growth at about 10% plus a year. And if the bottom line is either stable or margins tick up to 30%, like they think they can get, then bottom line will go quicker. I don't think you need to do any fancy modeling as long as the dilution is fine and maybe they start buying back shares again. Um, returns will be good. All right. Bear case, Brad, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I guess that it's closer to Tattoo Chef than, than it is Louis Vuitton and, and, and Ferrari in that um, this kind of uh, facade that they've built in terms of catering to affluent clients is is not um, is not something that they can use to offset pricing pressures and not something that they can use um, to do things like succeed in Europe where there is a, a, a large cohort of, of probably interested borrowers that fit their demographic. Um, so it, it's a boring bull case or it's a boring bear case. It's just they, they, they don't execute. It's their bear case. I mean, when you have this con- consumer discretionary brand, it really is about um, management, management quality and, and, and capital allocation and, and execution. And, and so that, that's what has to happen. And if it doesn't, then they won't work. Yeah. The it's, it's hard because it's like, if, if these things work and they're able to increase their, uh, revenue on a per gallery basis and then expand their galleries. This is obviously going to be a good investment. The, my concern is that, and I think this is obviously the market's concern too, that the short-term headwinds could throw a wrench in like 
growth initiatives, especially if capital is really tied up and restricted and all these supply chain problems. Could be good. They took out that term loan recently. Yeah. That could be helpful. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. The, con- the concern for me is the short term and then maybe reckless capital allocation. Yeah. Or I- risky capital allocation. Yeah, it's interesting. The big like question for like a luxury product is kind of like when the price of the what it costs is the product, like whatever Louis Vuitton or Ferrari or I think RH uh, has that Tiffany's. I, I don't know. That's the question. I, I am not sure. Does RH have that? Is they, the price they the basically product? moved up market and gained traction doing it? Yeah. So far. I think I mean, everyone compares stuff to Apple all the time. It feels closer to that where it's like half luxury where, you know, you know, like I, I wonder Apple's if Apple's a good comp. Then. I'm saying Apple's, that's, Apple's that's a fantastic, a good comp. way to go. Fantastic comp. Um, I'll have my bear case. Same thing. New projects burn a lot of money and cyclicality is more of an issue than we think. I think that is really the bear cases that we all had. Let's move into the last question. More or less interested, Brad, final thoughts on RH. Yeah, I think more, uh, more interested. Um, it's not, it's not that 15% plus compounder that I, I really like, but it does seem like it could grow, not it could grow close to 10% or, or eight, nine, 10% in that range for the next few years. And at a, I was just looking at the multiples, like I think it was like 10 or 11 times EBITDA and something like that. There's, you know, there's a lot to like if they can continue to figure their stuff out. And we do have evidence of them making a pretty dramatic pivot and figuring it out when people thought that they wouldn't. Um, so uh, probably we'll just keep an eye on this um, a little. I, I, I should say a little bit more interested, not not super super more interested, but um, I think more interested is a good classification. All right, Brian. I think I'm going to go less interested. Um, oh, surprise! I thought you're going to be more. No, it doesn't feel very predictable. Uh, like, yeah. I don't know what these initiative, how these initiatives will play out. I imagine they are seeing good traction with them since they already have them in 13 galleries and they're really plowing money into them. Um, well, restaurants is different. They've proven restaurants in the galleries, but the other stuff is way unproven. Yeah. And the, I, um, yeah, just hard to predict less interested. Yeah. I think I'm more interested, but I mean, if this was something that was asset light, didn't really have any um, uh, impact from like the physical world cost. And also if it didn't combine that with consumer discretionary, I mean, at this price, given the historical track record of execution, it would seem awesome. But those are just the big hangups for me. I, Personally, I just like stuff that doesn't have energy price, uh, lumber, whatever, all those prices as inputs. It's just lowers the bar a little bit for me compared to something else at the same price. Yeah. Um, but I'm still very, in- I like, I'm still more interested. It's going. It's already gone on the watch list. I mean, it's something to watch. It's also a fascinating story. Also fun to see all their initiatives. That's what, yeah, this is fun to look at, but it feels like you could get this kind of upside elsewhere with less risk associated with it. Like, yeah. uh, like Maybe the opportunity. Spotify? Hey, <laughs> we can't talk. Well, yeah, we don't want to talk. Uh, we don't want to uh, oh, my talk. Life, we're my owners of Spotify. So. <laughs> no, we're allowed to, but. Uh, but digital businesses generally. Yes, like, exactly. You met it. That's a good example. Yeah. Just some of those feel more predictable right now with potentially the same sort of upside. Yeah. And predictable of operating expenditures. Uh, Expenses costs, as input, well as. Input costs and stuff like that. As, as well as re- growth. Just yeah. Overall growth. 
Yeah, exactly. All right. That's going to do it. Stock for next week is Ryan's turn. What do you got for us? Okay. So we got a recommendation. Uh, oh, in the review? In the, no, uh, I did not check the reviews. Do we have any in there? We had one. It's one we might want to cover on the live stream because it's like a micro cap type deal. Oh, okay. Maybe avoid that. But uh, someone DM'd me and they want to do Brookfield Asset Management. Have you heard of that? I've heard of them, but haven't looked at them in any details. Brad, have you heard of them before? Nope. All right, cool. Okay, that's our homework assignment. All right, we'll see you in two weeks then. Um, Anything else, Ryan? Nope. On that? All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember to give us a review, easy review. It takes five seconds on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out Brad's newsletter, Stock Market Nerd. Well, I believe we always have a link in the show notes if you want to read his write-ups. Always for free, right? Yes, sir. All right. And uh, let's give the disclosure. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 